there was a principle set forth in high school algebra class that said this. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You guys got that? That is an algebraic principle, right? And a lot of algebra is based upon that kind of consideration. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Actually, while that is a foundational math principle in algebra, it's also the basis of what we refer to as deductive reasoning. And so while we would talk about this sort of thing maybe if we were discussing algebra, we would also discuss that if we were talking about principles of logic. And that's what we want to do in our study tonight. We want to talk about deductive reasoning. We want to talk about logic. We want to talk about using those principles in understanding the will of God. But you know, really, we use this idea of deductive reasoning in all manners of day-to-day activity. Let me give you just a few examples. All numbers ending in 0 or 5 are divisible by 5. The number 35 ends with a 5, therefore it must be divisible by 5. That would be true, right? And so if the two premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. Here's something easier. It's dangerous to drive on icy streets. The streets are icy now, so it would be dangerous to drive on the streets now, right? We would deduce that from the premises stated. All cats have a keen sense of smell. Fluffy is a cat. Fluffy has a keen sense of smell. That would follow, right? We understand that. It's not hard. How about this? Cacti are plants. All plants perform photosynthesis. Therefore, cacti perform photosynthesis. Easy. That all follows. We don't have any problem with that. How about this? Red meat has iron in it. Beef is red meat. Therefore, beef has iron in it. We get that. One more, not to belabor the point, but one more. Elephants have cells in their bodies, and all cells have DNA. Therefore, elephants have DNA. We get it, right? It's called deductive reasoning. I want to suggest to you that God expects us to use our powers of logic and reasoning. We want to talk about using logic and reasoning when it comes to understanding what God wants for us, what he expects from us. And I would argue, and we're going to try to prove from the scriptures tonight, that God actually expects, wants, and demands that we use our capacity for logic and reasoning to know about him, And to understand his will for us, God expects us to use our powers of logic and reasoning. Stop here for just a minute before we sort of dive into that a little deeper. We stop here just for a minute to thank you for being here. We've had just an unbelievably pleasant Lord's Day in Middle Tennessee. The weather has been like spring or early summer rather than late fall, early winter. 
I understand from the weather forecast that may change here in the next few hours, but it sure has been a pleasant day. Uh, I want to really commend our young people. Joel said that there was just a great turnout of our young people to do work, raking leaves and doing some other things for some of our members. And, and I, I just want to uh, commend you for doing that. I think that is a noble thing, and you uh, have been an encouragement to so many by virtue of what you did this afternoon. We thank you all who were involved in doing those things today. Thanks for being here tonight, and especially thanks to any and all who are visiting with us tonight. Let's talk about this. As we were just saying, deductive reasoning is really essential in all kinds of day-to-day endeavors. All, all things of life are affected in various ways by the power of deductive reasoning. And we think God expects us to do that religiously, but sadly, in religion, logic is often abandoned and it's replaced with emotions, feelings, and false conclusions. Now... That has been a problem for a long time. When people don't pay attention to what logically should follow and instead pursue their feelings, their emotions. This has been a problem for a long time. Look at a sort of a classic example of this. And I want to use the Apostle Paul as the example of this. In Acts chapter 26, Paul describes himself before before he became a Christian. And here's what he said about himself. He said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Now, key in on this, I verily thought with myself. It's what Paul felt. It's what he felt he should do. But... The fact of the matter is that he had been exposed to strong evidence that said he should do something different. When when the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, the Lord Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. This is the King James Version. We've talked about this expression here before, and it seems to be that Paul had been observing things that were trying to push him in the direction of Christianity. Paul had been seeing and observing things, even as he was in the process of persecuting Christians, he had been seeing things in them. He'd been seeing evidence put forth that seemed to indicate that maybe this business about Jesus is true and legitimate. But he had been rejecting that, and he was continuing to do the things that he thought he should do. Things that his emotions and his feelings would lead him to do. He was doing what he thought he should do, but he wasn't doing what the facts were indicating to him that he should do. When the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Jesus was pointing out that that Paul was battling against logic and reasoning as he continued to persecute Christians. Uh, So again, I want to suggest to you that Paul's case is a a classic case. Lots of people do it. They pursue feelings over logic. That happens a lot in our world today, Uh, especially in matters of religion. Feelings are sort of the guiding principle in most people's religious life. Now, could I make a, a, a positive statement here? And I, I, I certainly want this to register with you. 
We are not saying, and I don't want you to leave here tonight saying, well, the preacher says there's no place for emotion in religion. That's, that's not true, and that's not our point at all. Certainly, there's a, there's a, a, a very critical part that emotion is to play uh, in our religious service to God. And so please, no, no matter what else we might say and study tonight, please don't leave here and say, well, the preacher said, if you are emotional about your religion, you're wrong. I didn't say that. I don't believe that. I don't want you to take that away. There is a place, and we should have strong emotional involvement in our religious service. But that emotional involvement in our religious service should not exclude or supersede the use of logic and reasoning, good common sense. I want to suggest to you that when Jesus was teaching, he expected his audience to draw necessary logical conclusions. Let me give you a few examples of this just to prove the point of our lesson. God wants us to use logic and reasoning. Jesus, when he was here on earth and as he was teaching, he expected those that he was teaching to use their powers of logical deduction. Um, Look at an example in Mark chapter 2. In the case of Jesus healing a paralytic man, we're going to look at the King James Version here that's going to call it a man who was afflicted with the palsy. Newer versions will say that he was a paralyzed or paralytic man. And I think you can see how Jesus used logic or expected his audience to use logic to draw a conclusion. Here's the the text in Mark chapter 2 beginning verse 5. Jesus said to the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, let's stop right there for a minute. So Jesus said to this man who had been brought into his presence. You remember, this is the episode, by the way. We don't have room to put all of this on the screen. But this is the episode, you remember, where this man was was brought to where Jesus was by his friends. He was on a bed or a cot. And they came to the house where Jesus was and where Jesus was teaching. But they couldn't get in. The crowd was so large they couldn't get him. They couldn't get their friend into the presence of Jesus. And they got up on the roof and they tore the roof back and they let him down. You remember? That's this episode. And, and so when the paralyzed man was brought in the presence of Jesus, Jesus said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And... Those in, in, in that audience immediately reacted by that, by, to that by saying, whoa, hold on just a minute there. Who does this guy think he is? Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? I want to suggest to you that their reaction at that point was appropriate. That it is true that only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus said, thy sins be forgiven, they said, oh, 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 wait just a minute now. You hold on there. Who who does this guy think he is that he can forgive sins? I believe that was a completely appropriate reaction to that. I, I hope you would react that way. If I stood up here tonight and said, Gordon, I forgive your sins. Tim, I'm going to forgive your sins only. Bob, I'll forgive your sins too. I hope you would all stand up in opposition to that sort of terrible, blasphemous activity. That's what these people did. But the text goes on. Jesus is going to use that. So the text goes on here. Jesus says, whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or 
to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So what did Jesus expect them to conclude? He didn't say, in other words, when they said, who can forgive sins but God only? Jesus did not say, well, I'm God. I can forgive sins. I'm God. No, he didn't do that. That really wouldn't have proved his point, would it? Instead of that, he performed, uh, or he explained, if I can perform this miracle, then that demonstrates that I am God. And that I have the power to forgive sins. Uh, and so he, he healed the paralytic man and he expected his audience. He, he didn't come out right out and affirm, I am God. I have the power to forgive sin. Instead, he worked the miracle in their presence and asked them to use their powers of logical deduction to say, well, wait a minute. If he can heal the sick, he must be God. If he can heal the sick, he is God. God can forgive sins. He can forgive sins. You see how Jesus expected that logical progression to follow? That's just an example of Jesus expecting his audience to be able to do that. Let me give you another example. Remember in the text that that, uh, uh, was read to us by Chandler just a few minutes ago in Luke chapter 7, when John sent some of his disciples to Jesus, Luke 7, beginning verse 18 The disciples of John reported all these things to him, to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Stop right there. So there's the question. The question asked is, go ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? That is, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? That's the question. Now, I think you all remember that we've studied this before. My my thinking here is that John didn't have any doubt about the answer to that question, but rather he sends his disciples for their benefit so that they'll get the answer to the question. I don't think John John was an inspired man of God. He was the forerunner of Christ that was prophesied in the Old Testament. I don't think John had any doubt in his mind that Jesus was the Messiah. I believe he was sending his disciples for their benefit. So, He says, you go ask Jesus. He sends his disciples, you go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, how does Jesus deal with that question? Did Jesus say, well, yes, of course I am the one. Absolutely. I can't believe you're even asking the question. Of course I am the one. He didn't do that. What did he do instead? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached unto them. So Jesus said, Jesus didn't, again, he didn't just come out and positively affirm, yes, yes, I am the one. Instead, he said, go tell John. Go tell John what you have seen. Go tell John about the evidence that you have observed and he talked about the miracles that had been done in their presence. He, tell, he told them, draw the conclusion. Based upon what the evidence you have seen, you draw the conclusion. Am I the one or not? And he never answered the question directly. 
but he expected them to draw that reasonable conclusion from what they had observed. He was asking them to use their powers of logical deduction. And they would go back and tell John, yes, he's the one, because we saw him performing these mighty miracles. Let me give you one more example. Again, we're using these examples to show that Jesus expected this of the people that he taught. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate in John chapter 18? In John chapter 18, Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? So again, here, stop right here. Here's the question to Jesus. Art thou the king of the Jews? Now, he didn't answer again. I want you to observe here that Jesus didn't answer yes or no. But what he did is he pointed out, what Jesus did is he pointed out what was happening in this immediate context. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So when Pilate asked the question, art thou the king of the Jews? Pilate certainly meant, are you a physical king over the Jews? Jesus didn't say yes or no. Jesus said, well, if I was, if I was a physical king over the Jews, my disciples would fight. But they're not fighting, right? And so the conclusion would be, I am not the physical king of the Jews. Uh, Jesus was not an earthly king because if he was, his disciples would have fought in his behalf. They weren't fighting. Jesus is not a physical king over the Jews on earth, right? Jesus is a spiritual king. But again, I, I, I'm just pressing the point. I hope I'm not belaboring it too much. The, the conclusion had to be drawn from what he said. He didn't give an affirmative yes or no, and he expected Pilate to draw the necessary conclusion. Again, that's the principle of using logic and reasoning to understand essential, vital truths. Paul said that anybody who fails to do that, who fails to draw logical conclusions, is actually inexcusable. Notice in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, in, in this last part of Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing the pagan Gentile world of the first century. And in, in that context, in that broader context, he says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. This word perceived is interesting. Vine says that the word perceived there means understood in the mind. So he said things of God can be clearly understood in one's mind. He has shown these things. God has demonstrated these things. His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, should be understood ever since the creation of the world by virtue of the things that have been made. So he said, look around. Even the pagan Gentiles should have been able to look around. And they should have been able to see the power of God manifested in the physical creation. He said these things should be clearly perceived. 
To the extent that they were not, he said, they are without excuse. The fact that they had not perceived these things and had not drawn the conclusion about the Almighty God of heaven, the fact that they had not drawn those conclusions, he said, that's inexcusable. He said, you get that kind of evidence displayed in front of you and then you don't reach the conclusion, the only working possible conclusion if you don't, if you if you don't use your brain and draw that conclusion, he said, you are without excuse. And so again, I would add that to to this argumentation that we're making tonight is that there's actually an expectation on us. God expects us to use our powers of logic and reasoning to make necessary deductions. And in fact, if you don't, I think that's a pretty powerful word that Paul used there. It's inexcusable if you're not willing to do so. If you're gonna, if you're going to abandon, as we said earlier up here, if you're going to abandon logic and reason and replace it with emotions, feelings, and false conclusions, that is an inexcusable thing. Let's do one more exercise here. Let's do a little exercise ourselves to show how this works and to emphasize the importance of using logic and reasoning to draw proper conclusions. And, and, and as a case study, I want to consider with you infant baptism for a minute. That's, that's a subject we've talked about a lot. Sort of unbelievably, the religious world is divided on something as basic, on a simple basic question like infant baptism. There, there are plenty of religious groups who say babies should be baptized. Uh, and they do, and they practice infant baptism. And that's, that's been going on for centuries. We know that. We don't do that. They do. We don't. And so we actually have polar opposite views on this question of infant baptism. Some people say, yes, you should baptize your babies. And, uh, and, and those like us say, no, absolutely not. The, the, the scriptures do not teach or authorize infant baptism. Who, who's right about that? Well, we can draw this conclusion pretty easily, again, using our powers of deduction. Look at some familiar verses. In Mark 16, verse 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So baptism is for believers. Uh, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So baptism is, is an act to be engaged by believers. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So repentance must accompany, actually repentance must precede scriptural baptism. So in order for baptism to be valid, it must be preceded by repentance in one's heart. Well, think about that for a minute. Infants can't believe and infants can't repent. They're not capable of those thought processes. And that being the case then, we would conclude logically that infant baptism is invalid because infants can't do the things that are necessary prerequisites to a scriptural baptism. They can't be taught so that they believe and they can't go through the mental process of repenting. We'll talk here in a minute about the fact that, of course, absolutely uh, nothing to repent of anyway. But if they did have sins, they couldn't repent. They're not capable of those kind of thought processes. So if they can't do the things that must necessarily precede baptism, then logically we would say baptism is not a valid thing for infants, right? 
Or look at it this way. Here's another argument. But again, I want you to consider we're making a logical progression to answer a very simple Bible question. What about infant baptism? In Acts 22, verse 16, Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is for washing away sins. Baptism, that's what, that's what that verse plainly says, right? Our sins are washed away in baptism. So baptism is for washing away sins. But in Matthew 19, verse 14, Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is made up of as such as little children. That being the case, little children are innocent. So if baptism is for washing away of sins, but little children are innocent, then again, we would conclude from that that infant baptism is not a valid practice, is not taught or authorized in the pages of the New Testament. We, we can come to that conclusion so easily. And isn't it a little bit frustrating that in our religious world that a question like that still represents a, a, a conflict or a disagreement? If we would use our powers of logic and reasoning, that question would go away. The answer is clear. And in fact, as Paul said, if you won't accept that logical conclusion, you are without excuse. Logic demands that. So there again, uh, we see, and I hope we are able to illustrate, uh, that it is right and proper to use, and, and in fact, inspect, expected to use the powers of logic and reasoning. I want to repeat one more time here uh, that we are not saying that our religion should be completely emotionless, uh, that there's no place for feelings or emotion in our religion. And we're not saying that. We don't mean that. We don't believe that. But the fact of the matter is that feelings and emotion cannot, should not be allowed to supplant the necessity of using our powers of logic and reasoning. Thanks for your good attention to what we've said and hope it's helpful. I actually think that that's sort of an increasingly great problem in the religious world because in religion particularly, people seem to be completely driven by emotions and feelings. And while emotions and feelings have a valuable part in our lives of service to God, we do not determine truth based upon emotions and feelings. We determine truth based upon the revealed word of God. And we use our mental powers in order to draw the right conclusions. Thank you for listening to what we had to say. We're going to sing this song of invitation. As we sing this song, we'll ask each of you, make sure your life is right with God. If you need to obey the gospel, if you need the prayers of the saints, if we can help in any way, let us know while we're singing this song.